welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Uh, Acts chapter 14 is where we are, Um, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 14 if you're not there already. In Acts 14, we hear the rest of the first missionary journey, as you just heard a second ago. Uh, Last week, we saw the first leg of the journey, uh, and hopefully today we will see the second half of uh, that first missionary journey, and next week we'll be at the council uh, in in Jerusalem. And uh, one thing I was thinking through this week is through this passage is, is maybe you've heard this before, is the church... uh, a museum or is the church on mission? Are we museum curators or are we sent ambassadors? Or are we just trying to keep what we have and, and continue to showcase uh, who we are and what we have? Or are we sent as ambassadors to all nations uh, to see other people come to faith in Jesus Christ? The title of this whole series is called Acts Sent Ones. And one thing particularly I want to look at this morning is that truth that we are sent ones. Do, how, how do we get involved in our world? Do we try to um, keep ourselves from our world and try to stay safe? Or do we go out as ambassadors no matter the cost, whether the spiritual cost, the relational cost, or uh, the physical cost? Uh, Do we just try to keep things nice and tidy, or are we a church on mission? Donald McLeod, who is an old, uh, I believe a Scottish uh, Presbyterian, uh, he wrote a great little book uh, on the Trinity called Shared Life or Life Together. I can't remember which one. This is not from this book, but uh, it does talk about the incarnation. And here's what he writes. I think it's relevant to what we um, are looking at this morning. He says, Jesus did not, as incarnate, live a life of detachment. He lived a life of involvement. As the Father had sent Jesus, so he sends us. So I want you to see that, that, that Jesus is sent to, to us. He lived where he could see human sin, hear human swearing and blasphemy, see human diseases and observe human mortality, poverty, and squalor. His mission was fully incarnational because he taught men by coming alongside them, becoming one of them, and sharing their environment and their problems. He goes on to say, for us as individuals and churches and in an affluent society, this is a great embarrassment. How can we effectively minister to the lost world if we are not in it? So if we're not going as ambassadors to the world, how can we minister to the world? How can we go as sent ones if we aren't going? How can we reach the ignorant and the poor, he goes on to say, if we are not with them? How can our churches understand deprived areas if the church is not in those areas? How can we be salt and light in dark places if we ourselves don't have any effective contacts or relationships with people in those places? He goes on to say that Jesus came right alongside the people and shared their experience at every level. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, something that we see on these missionary journeys is these apostles and these disciples, they're going among people. They didn't stay in Jerusalem. They went with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was messy. It was difficult, and they faced persecution, and they faced great, and they, they experienced great glory as many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. My point in all of this is that Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. We are to be involved in our world. We're to, we are to be among people, 
And just as Jesus is the ultimate sent one, we too are to be sent. And so with that in mind this morning, I want to I want to challenge you with five things this morning about what it means to be a, a sent one from Acts chapter 14. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that sent ones, those who, like Christ, are going into a dark world that people might be saved to the glory of God the Father, as we go on the mission of Jesus Christ, as we go as sent ones, the first thing that I want you to see this morning is that sent ones are driven. Now, now what do we mean by that? Are, are, are we driven with our, with our own desires? Our, our, what, what drives us as sent ones on mission of the mission of Jesus Christ, we're, we're, we're driven, number one, by the promises of Jesus. We are driven by the promises of Jesus. We're not driven by our own ambitions. We're not driven by business models. We're not driven by anything like that. We are driven by the promises of Jesus. What are those promises? Well, here's some of them that we see in Acts, the promise of mission. He says uh, that he promised, Jesus promised, that you will receive power and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the world. Jesus has promised us and has given us a mission, the mission of God to fill the world with his glory. That's the overall mission of God, that you will be part of that mission. That's what you were designed to do. Made in the image of God, we are designed to fill this world with the glory of God. And Jesus promised that's what you are to be doing, just to be clear. We are to, f- to be on mission, filling the world with the glory of God. And Jesus promised the mission, and Jesus promised the success and completion of the mission. Now, when I'm talking about this, so we're driven by the promises, the, by the promise that we have a mission, by the promise of the success of that mission. Now, it might not look like the business success or whatever success you might see. It might not come in budgets and buildings and numbers and, and things like that. It might. It might. But what did Jesus promise? Jesus promised that the church would be built and that death itself, the gates of Hades, would not be able to prevail against the power of the gospel. That's the promise. And that's what drives us. That death itself will not prevent the gospel from spreading to all nations. And then the end will come. He promised that the mission would be completed and then the end would come. Uh, Jesus has not come back yet. Are we, we're good with that? He has not come back. That means that the mission is still happening. The mission is still going on. And that means even today, death itself cannot stop a mission. I don't know about you, but that drives me. That even if they take my life, the mission goes on. That he has given us a purpose. He's given us a mission to spread the glory of God through the power of the gospel and promised us that even death itself will not stop it. There's more promises. He promised his presence. I will be with you. He doesn't leave us to do this on our own power. He promised the power of the Spirit. He promised his presence. He says, behold, I go with you always, even to the end of the age. He will never not be with us because he is a good shepherd. He leads, he guides us, even in dark, scary, lonely places, our shepherd is with us. Our resurrected and reigning Christ goes with us. 
We are driven by the promises of God, the promise that we have a mission. We have a mission that cannot be stopped, and we have an unstoppable Christ going with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see this in Acts chapter 14. You you saw this, right? The same power that was at the temple gates in Jerusalem, the power to raise the dead, is with the apostles there in Gentile pagan Lystra. The power of Christ is going with. The power of Christ is not contained to a place. It's spreading to all nations. So we're, we're driven by the promises of God. Uh, sent ones are driven. We're driven by the promises of God. And there's other promises you could probably think of. And we're driven by the message of Jesus Christ. The message of grace. This is what was stirring up the religious. This is the message they do not want to hear. This is a message that the world still finds hard to hear because the default of the human heart is self-righteousness. We don't like to hear that someone else has accomplished something for us. We don't like to ask for help. And we don't like to admit that we are helpless. But this is what they go with. This is their power. This is the drive that all people will hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what makes Christianity different than all religions of the entire world. That we preach a gospel of grace. You see it throughout Acts that the word of God is spreading. You see it here in Acts chapter 14 verse 3 that what they were preaching, they bore witness. Even these signs and wonders did. You can see it, maybe underline it. The word of his grace. We see it in Acts 14 uh, verse 15. Again, he says that uh, men of like nature, we bring you what? Good news. We see it also in, in verse 21 that they had preached the gospel to that city. So they're driven by the promises of God and, and they're driven by the message and the grace of Jesus Christ. And ultimately they're driven by the worship of God. They desire that the whole world be filled with the glory of God. So we must be driven by being gospel people, Jesus people that all the world might hear. I got permission uh, to tell this story. We were at uh, camp this week um, at Camp Living Waters, and one night we were sitting um, at dinner. Um, I was sitting on one side of the table. My daughter was sitting on the other side of the table, um, and this other girl was sitting uh, next to me. Um, and we, were, we started talking about church. Where do you go to church? And this uh, little girl uh, said, you know, I'm with this church that's here, but I go to another church. And so we got into a conversation, Penny and this other girl. And uh, Penny's my daughter, and she asked this other girl, uh, hey, uh, tell me a little bit about your church. And um, so they started telling each other about uh, their churches. And this other little girl said, you know, our ch- not that there's anything bad with loud music and things like this, but uh, our church has loud music. It almost hurts our ears. And um, it's just, it's just a, a big thing, and, and this is what our church is like. And, and Penny says, um, well, well we, we talk about the gospel in Jesus. Do y'all talk about the gospel in Jesus? And uh, she kind of shook her head, and my, my daughter looked at me and went, like that. <laughs> now, that church probably talks about the gospel in, G- in Jesus, but that was a proud dad moment, right? Because she gets what drives us. 
She gets what drives me and what drives Riverside is the the promise of the fulfillment of the mission and the power of Christ and the presence of Christ. And that's a true story, by the way, that that happened at camp this week. That's not just a sermon illustration, uh, though it is. Uh, But we're driven by the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, uh, the grace of Jesus Christ. So sent ones are driven. Uh, Sent ones, the second thing I want you to know this morning, that sent ones are humble. Sent ones are humble. Sent ones are humble in their approach. We'll get back to some of that first part of Acts chapter 14 um, in a minute, uh, but but we see in Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8, so so there, there's some division in Iconium, that's uh, verses 1 through 7, and, and then they leave and they go on uh, to Lystra, and, and you notice something, I, I read it a second ago, you notice something that happens in Lystra when, when they're dealing with with Jews and going to synagogues as they were in, 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 cha- in the beginning of chapter 14, often they start with the Old Testament scriptures and they walk through the Old Testament scriptures and point to the fact that how they are the fulfillment of Christ. But now that they are in Lystra among uh, God, uh, pagan people, they don't know the Old Testament. And, and so these apostles have to be humble in their approach. It, it's not that they, they don't get to Christ, but they have to be humble in their approach. They have to be contextual in their approach. Paul would go on to say something like this. He says uh, that he became all things to all people, that by all means he might save some. He did not compromise the gospel, and we'll see this in a second. He would not change the, the least truth in the least way in order to satisfy anyone, but he would condescend in any way for anyone if that would in any way help to bring them to Christ. He would set aside and restrict his liberty so that they might see the gospel. And in a similar way, we see what they do here. Do you notice what happens here? Yes, we'll talk about this in a minute. They wanted to worship them. But do you see what he says? He, he doesn't start with the Old Testament scriptures. He says, why are you doing these things? In verse 15, we are also men. We'll talk about that more in a second. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And notice what he says. Not, you morons, you don't know the Old Testament scriptures? He says, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea that is all that is in them? In past generations, he Allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness for he did a good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with, with food and gladness. He, he points to the common grace of God. He points to the common grace of God. And, and don't you see how the maker of all things is sustaining you? Don't you see in, in, in nature, this is the common grace of God. This is general revelation. It's not enough to save them, but enough to, to, to bind their consciences. Don't you see this? But he doesn't stop there. He says, look, God has been so kind to you. Now look, he is kinder still. Here's the good news of the gospel. That not only has he provided rains and satisfied your hearts with crops and things like that. Here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he sent his own son for you. That you might have not just satisfaction here in this world. But satisfaction in all of life for all of eternity. Turn from those vain things you are worshiping and worship the true and living God. God has been so good to you. Don't turn and thank the clouds. God has sustained you and gives you life. Thank him for that. Here, here's what he's doing. He's, I think he's humble in his approach, the sent one. And, and you know how this is. With different people, you might have to start different places. 
We talk about this sometimes of having gospel conversations. We start somewhere. Maybe it's a hunger for love, a a hunger for community, a search for freedom or identity, a quest for meaning, someone who's overwhelmed by guilt, or you point to beauty or satisfaction or joy. There's all these ways that we get into spiritual conversations. But the humility does not neglect the grace of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets to the gospel in a different way than he did with the Jews, but he still humbly gets to the gospel. He doesn't say, oh, Zeus and Hermes, you have good gods too. No, he still preaches the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gets to the gospel. You know, part of me wonders, some of you saw this this week, um, the Oklahoma softball team, that's been going all over social media and things like that. Uh, all these young ladies who won a national championship three or four years in a row, whatever it was. And uh, they talk about finding their true joy and satisfaction in Christ, eyes up to Christ. And I just wonder if somewhere along the way, there was a chaplain or a pastor or maybe even one of those girls who met them where they are. Because you, you know these girls, they've been in travel ball, no doubt, their entire lives. And their entire identity is built on softball. And at some point, someone met them where they were and told them about a true joy and a better identity that is found in Christ. I think this challenges all of us is when we have those conversations, humbly find where people are. Be be among them. See what makes them tick and get it to Christ. They were humble in their approach and they were also humble in their character We saw this in the beginning of verse 8. They went to Lystra. They have the power of God that's giving testimony to the the, the power of the gospel as a dead man, not as a dead man, as a lame man walks who had never walked before. We see the power of Christ among them in that way. And do you notice what they faced there? This whole town was ready to worship them. They were bringing out the oxen, the garlands, they were calling them Zeus and Hermes. They had an opportunity at that point to bring in the praise of men. They had an opportunity. This was their moment to build a platform. This was a moment where they could be worshipped. This is the moment where the book deals roll in, where board appointments come, where they spot, where they, where they have a spot at the most prominent tables. They were in. They were being worshipped. They had an opportunity at that point to tweak that in such a way, maybe a little false humility, and still find their way in a place of self-importance. This is the lure of human approval. To Paul and Barnabas, and maybe you and me, the allure of human approval, acceptance, esteem, and admiration are very dangerous and enticing and very threatening and tempting. It's easy to take flattery and draw attention away from the true and living God. Do you notice what they immediately did? Put all of this away. It even cost them because do you see at the end that they they were scarcely restrained the people. They still wanted to offer sacrifices and they still stoned them in that city. They were bringing them good news of great joy for all people. 
That could have played out well for them. They could have been living high on the hog. But they said, no, 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 don't turn to us. Turn to the living God. They were humble in their approach, and they were humble in their character. We must be willing to point people to Jesus instead of ourselves. And so driven people, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, sent ones are driven by the promises of God. Sent ones are humble. Number three, sent ones are unwavering. Sent ones are unwavering. We see this, I think, in two ways. One, sent ones are unwavering in the way they face trials, in the way they face opposition. Number one, in spiritual opposition. You see that in chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. They go preaching the gospel, but there were unbelieving Jews that stirred up the Gentiles. They poisoned their mind, it says, And it goes on to say that they were divided. Look at verse 4. The people were poisoned, and now it says that the city was divided, some with the Jews and some with the apostles, and they realized they were about to stone them, so they left the city. Sent ones are unwavering when we face opposition. Sent ones are unwavering when we face spiritual opposition. When minds are poisoned with unbelief. You know this, young people, you need to hear this, that the enemy can turn unbelief into a contagious epidemic. Other people can infect you with their rebellion. Yes, we are all individually responsible for our response to the gospel, absolutely. But be careful who you hang around. Heck, adults need to think about this as well. Unbelief is contagious. It's like poison. And eventually, whether you believe the gospel or not, this will bring division. Jesus said this in in Matthew chapter 10. Yes, even the Prince of Peace says this. That you either live in two camps, and if, if you're following Christ, this could pit you against your own family members, that even your own family members can be divided against you. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 10. If you're following Christ. Sent ones are unwavering, even in spiritual opposition. Yes, humble in their approach, humble in their character, but yes, resolute and unwavering, even in the face of spiritual opposition. And not only spiritual opposition, that's what you might face, but but one day we might face physical opposition. We we see at the end of chapter 14, verse 7, that they decided to to leave that city and not face that, that physical opposition. The Spirit led them out, but they continued to preach the gospel because they had received that promise and they kept going with that. But at the end of the chapter, we read this. There was a time to stay and a time to go, but they kept preaching no matter the cost, the physical cost, because sent ones are unwavering in the face of opposition, spiritually and physically. They, they left Iconium, but they preached the gospel in Lystra, made Many disciples, it says. But before that, they were persuading, look at verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and they persuaded the crowds and they stoned Paul. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But the disciples gathered about him and he rose up and entered back into that city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe and continued to preach the gospel. The account goes on to say that they end up returning to Lystra to encourage the church, to encourage the disciples. Sometimes we think if we face physical opposition that the Lord might be closing a door. And he might, 
It might be time to move on and dust off your feet. But also it might be time to go back in. To walk through the trail of blood, of your own blood, that followed you out of the city and walk right back into that city and preach the gospel a little more. And then it might be time to leave and come back. We don't know, but we're trusting in the Lord's guidance. Don't just assume because you face spiritual opposition or physical opposition that somehow the Lord is closing a door. He might be, but either way, we must be unwavering to continue to preach the gospel. There's a time to stay, a time to go, a time to flee. There might be a time to get stones. And we need spirit-filled wisdom when to engage and when to dust off our feet. Either way, we're bold in word. When minds were poisoned, they kept preaching the gospel of grace. Bold in actions, even when they carried him out of the city, just about dead. We get up and walk back in, and we may even walk to the next city with a little bit of a limp, but still preaching the gospel. Two other quick ones. Sent ones are driven by the promises of God. Sent ones are humble. Sent ones are unwavering in the face of opposition. Sent ones are devoted to the church. Sent ones are devoted to the church. Do you see how this ends up? They preached the gospel to that city, made disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, so all the cities they had been in, and listened to what they did. They strengthened the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They came back. They discipled. They strengthened disciples. They encouraged disciples. They exhorted disciples. Remain faithful. And when they had appointed elders, they put leaders in church. Here, here's, some, here's the elders. God appointed shepherds to lead this church for them in every church. Every church had elders. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And not only did they strengthen the church, exhort the church, appoint godly leadership in those churches, they celebrated with the church. They returned to Antioch, the one that he had sent them, and they arrived, they gathered the church together. Verse 27, this is, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. They told them all had God had done. They went on this journey. They told them, yes, what you appointed us to do, we went to the nations preaching, and God opened the doors, and let's celebrate what God had done. What a beautiful picture of the church. Sent ones are devoted to the church. Wouldn't that be a wonderful picture of every time we come back to gather as a church week in and week out, we're able to sit in our small groups and church services and we're able to say, let me tell you what doors God opened this week. That was a picture of a sent one. They go with humility. They go on the promises of God. They go unwavering. And they come back together and declare what God has done. The final one is sent ones look like Jesus. Sent ones look like Jesus. A sent life is an incarnational life like our Christ who comes to us in humility that we might give glory to God the Father. A sent life looks like Philippians chapter 2, and we'll end here. 
So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. By the way, this is the picture of people striving side by side for the gospel as you see a few verses above this. So how do we strive for the gospel? How do we go with sent ones? Well, we're in full accord of the same mind. We do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we count others, sent ones are humble, more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. This is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality, equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on, a, on the cross. He was unwavering in his Father's will. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. This is what you have sent me to do, Father, so I will go to the cross for my sheep. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish. In the midst of, in the midst of, yeah, let the the state of our world get you upset. But in the midst of, the way Christ looked at us, ruined sinners, he comes to us, he tabernacled among us. He comes to us even to the point of death. He gave his life as a ransom for many. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were crooked and twisted. In the midst of a crooked and, twi- crooked and twisted generation, you sent ones go and shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, we will realize that we did not run in vain. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, Paul says. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Like our Christ, we humble ourselves. Like Christ, we go as Christ came to us, as we will celebrate in the supper, that that Christ comes to us, his body given for us, his blood shed for us. We go in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation to shine as lights, not for our own glory, but so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. May it be so.